Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unboxable, Unstoppable podcast with me, Elena Turley. This week, uh, I have a really good time talking to my dad. He's a writer and he's talking about collaboration and how it's something he's really just discovering as a writer in his 70s. And um, it's a great story just listening to what it's been like for him to go from being a solo creator to a collaborative process. So I hope you really enjoy that. This episode, as always, is brought to you by the Lion Life Academy, helping mothers find their way back to themselves so they can be bold custodians of their health, their families and the planet, and in doing so, rewrite the future. Please enjoy this episode with Bruce Russell. Hello and welcome to a very special guest. His name happens to be Bruce Russell, aka my dad. And um, I'm quite excited to have a chat and record it with my dad. And the reason that this happened is because I've been thinking a lot about collaboration lately and about the power of collaboration between people. And as it turns out, my very own dad has been having his own collaboration experience and I thought it might be a useful one to <laughs> share. So welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Helena. <laughs> yeah. um, it's hard to be overly formal with you, obviously. Yes. We've known and each other a long time. A very long time, the longest, and uh, on my account. And so, Bruce, you're sitting in Perth, Western Australia. I'm sitting in Sydney, Australia. And we're on this Zoom call mainly for the podcast, Unboxable, Unstoppable podcast. And I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and what you do. So tell me, give me a potted history of Bruce Russell in terms of your mm. creative, particularly creative history. Okay. Well, I'm essentially retired from um, regular paid work and I used to I'd teach and run groups and all sorts of things. But these days I spend most of my time writing and I am a, I'm a, I've been a published writer since I was, oh, well, for quite a long while. <laughs> since the mid-'90s I had a bit of a breakthrough and published our first novel. Um, and since then I've uh, published four or five novels Plus, I've completed a couple of uh, biographies of, like, commissioned biographies of, um, in this case, two businessmen who wanted me to interview their friends and, um, you know, glean as much information and, and interview them, obviously, and and present their lives as coherent stories, which was great because... I am essentially a novelist, but um, if I bring that to stories of people's lives, to biographies, then, um, you know, those, those skills come in very handy. There was collaboration there, of course, because um, the text flew back and forth and they, they would correct it and they would say, um, look, um, this isn't quite, you know, how I want to present myself. Or in one case, um, uh, oh, 
my friend Dan said that. Gosh, I really like the way he said that. I think you could have me saying that. Um, so so I learned lots of things by collaborating with um, those two guys but uh, do you want me to launch straight into the collaboration story or no let's have a conversation I want to ask a little bit more about so why and when did you start writing what was the beginning of your creative foray into being a writer tell me a bit about that where it's coming from yeah well I began not all that long before you were born, I guess, um, just writing sketches of people on the back of a boat heading for Europe with your mum. And I got very interested in the people on the boat, particularly on the back deck of the boat. They were all going off to somewhere else, in some cases to fame and glory, like Alan Jones, the uh, racing car driver, was on that boat. He was one of our mates on the back deck. We used to sit there sipping coffee and ouzo because it was a Greek ship. And I began to write these little sketches of people. So I guess that was a beginning. In Canada, where we taught school for a couple of years, um, I tried my hand at short stories and um, had a bit of help from a friend of my father's, but he wasn't able to place them. So I just kept going along like that and sort of getting slapped down and and then picking myself up and going, no, you know, I can. And then I finally um, entered a short story competition, a national short story competition, came second won a small amount of money, thought that my story was better than the winners and um, (laughs) just kept kept going from there. And uh, so I published quite a few short stories, never really got into the longer works, but when I moved to Perth uh, I had a particular um, story that I sort of needed to tell and it needed a full-length work. And it was a sad story about my brother and um, and the way he passed. And um, I ended up making that into a fiction. So that would be the beginning of uh, published, um, life as a published writer. Long yeah. form, long form published. Mm. And because um, I guess I'm curious also about did you, growing up, did you, was it something you imagined yourself doing? Did you read a lot? Were you someone who liked writers and yeah. what interest you did? I always, always read a lot and was read to by a, a, a loving grandma. And um, I guess that, you know, I often think that I might have become a theatre director or something like that. I used to love um she used to make puppets with me and I used to love making little theatres, you know, with a proscenium arch and getting characters to jump around and say things. Maybe it was like Punch and Judy or something, but that's what I used to love doing. And I was always good at composition, as we used to call it at school, and my English teacher um, encouraged me in high school and um, 
read out one of my stories once about lying in a tent with my head outside looking at the stars and he praised me for writing about um, real things, like for, for, for writing about things I knew. So that was great encouragement and probably shaped the sort of fiction I still write, which is uh, realist, um, I guess, to, to use a word. Yeah. Oh, so fantastic. that's how I got going. I love how you can always learn new things about family members when you talk in a different way like we are now. It's fantastic. There's some things here I've not heard before. Um, another thing I guess I'm just hearing and it's quite interesting is um, the effect of teachers. Well, first of all, the effect of a family member reading to you and the impact that had and the memory that gave you and then that sets the scene and then then you have a teacher reading out your story and encouraging you and you're good at it. And something we were talking about this week my mother reminded me something that my uh, high school principal said, Sydney Girls High School, Dot Shackley, and she apparently, when we were leaving, I don't remember this, said something about don't do what you love, do what you're good at to, to yes. start with. That's where you start ah. because that's where you'll have some success. Now, hopefully there's, there's a crossover there, but, um, right. but, I, but I do quite like what she's saying and especially with I've now got a son finishing school and, you know, in guiding him, I've actually been giving the similar guidance, which is, you know, you're really good with kids, you're really good with hospitality. Start with those because you'll you'll have some mm. measure of success, you'll have some measure of stability, and mm. and from there you can find your kind of zone of genius, like the thing that you're really best and amazing at, you know, and in flow with, and that mm. sort of thing. And so, so do the thing you're good at because it gives you a. A, a sort of wave of confidence to well, write. That's on. my yeah. That's my postscript. I don't know if that's what she meant, but mm. but I kind of get where she was coming from, and what you're saying sort of backs that up, doesn't it? Like mm. you were good at it, you enjoyed it, but also you were good at it. Your teacher said you were good at well, it, the, and read you out, and you know. Yeah, the rewards are very important early on in right. publishing. If you get some sort of break, so my two breaks were. That short story prize, you know, which is a very small thing really, but it was huge for me. And then the, for my first novel, um, an award over here called the TAG Hungerford Award. And so I won that and with the prize came, to, you know, some money, but but more importantly perhaps um, first publication. And publication with a mainstream publisher is very encouraging and it's hard to get and, and you know, people, um, you know, tread on each other's heads to try and get there. But it's <laughs> there are so many, you know, and there are lots of ways you can keep going without publishing, but publishing is one of those things that says, yeah, you're good enough for this. Yeah, and that's important and especially pre-online you know, this is in a pre-online world. So now yes. we can publish in a million different ways, you know, but then That's, it was different and yes. and that meant a different thing. And so, Although I think, yeah. well, that's true <clears throat> and, and perhaps this is very um, old school, as they say these days, but <clears throat> you can see a little tip of my bookshelf in the background. It's pretty huge if you turn the, you know, if you go all the way around and, um I think I still revere absolutely the, the 
hardcover or not or not, not necessarily hardcover, but a book, you know. A real a real book. A yeah. real book. And yeah. even with my pupils in a little class I run, when they self-publish, that's fine. And you can have quite a nice life self-publishing and you can go down to your local bookshop and have the bookshop stock it, not just your local bookshop, any bookshop, and have the bookshop stock it by personal relationship with that bookshop. Um, But I always tell them try as hard as you can to make it look like it's been published by a mainstream publisher. In other words, worry about the margins, worry about the product, you know, Mm. the actual look of it, worry about the cover Mm. and particularly worry about the editing and all the spelling and everything else so that it Mm. is a good product. And although you've had your own, I mean, you've had another life, I suppose, and successful enough career doing other things, running groups for men, um, running Mm. drug information centres, having another, I don't even know what to call your professional life because I know it all. I can't can't put it in a little box, which is great because that's what this podcast is about. But, But really, I guess you have also then gone on to, um, you were a doctorate candidate and achieved your doctorate in philosophy of writing, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you have to some degree received certain measure of credibility on several levels with your writing apart from your other mm. professional career. So you've done quite a lot, I think. Yeah, I don't know if this is a, um, you know, a side alley, but um, it's interesting that the PhD, which I did uh-huh. start when I was... Um, when I was 60, um, when my first grandson was born. Um, <laughs> the other grandson's just here. He wants to hear you. So if you can still be heard great. this way, let's. Yeah. Here's the other grandson. We'll see if it works. Hi, Cole. <laughs> so, yeah, um, there's something about doing the PhD that actually kind of made me stumble in my um, published, like, publishing mm-hmm. career. And I distinctly remember coming back with my PhD novel. and in, in um way? Which was called The Museum of the Self and I thought oh, yes. it was pretty good. And Yes. You know, I said, well, here it is and, you know, it's been supervised by Amanda Lowry, who's a well-known Australian writer. And yes. They said... We don't love it, you know. Mm. Pass and who said that? Your publisher. Yeah. So it may, I mean, there's a whole lot of factors there, but maybe the idea of having, you know, my publisher doesn't, you know, doesn't work for everybody. Like lots of writers get a, a jolt like that, where what who yes. they thought of as their publisher. Yes, right. Decides to pass for various reasons. You know. The publisher not your publisher. So would it be would it be fair to say that most of your writing up to a point apart from the ghostwriting collaboration that you did with the um, mm. business people has been fairly solo has been you know you've you've taught groups i know you've had a writing group for a lot of your life. Yes, it's solo. It, it, it's um absolutely i thought you can't get away from that. This is a solo occupation. You sit at your desk you slave over the words, you do drafts, you redraft it. 
some element of collaboration comes in when you actually take the manuscript to a publisher and they say yes and they give you a contract um, and, the editing and, and then you sit with them yeah. and perhaps negotiate about certain words and yes. certain phrases and that, I mean, that was a shock. I mean, if you've spent yes. two years by yourself creating a character as I did in my first book, mm. she was called Del Marie, funny name, and um, then I used to have um, discussions with my publisher about whether Del Marie would actually say that or and so on. You and know. you're like, but I created her. I know what she'd say. Yeah, I know what. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so that sort of collaboration exists, but it's always the you know the work at the desk mm. that seemed to me to be a lonely thing. <clears throat> what you had to do, you probably could only do it in a room by yourself where you've got privacy and, yeah, that, that's, that was how I thought of writing. And what's happened more recently? What happened more recently was that I mentioned this little class I, I run once a month at Maylands Library just down the road and um, this character showed up, um, I can say his name, Kelvin, and uh, he was, you know, an older guy, very jovial, um, he was always ready to, you know, read his bit of work that when we did writing exercises in class. And he said to me that he was publishing, self-publishing these crime books. You know, there was a whole series of them and some of them were set in the future and so on. And I, I sort of, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, okay, you know, so that's good, good, good luck to you. And he would read them to his mates um, or not read them, he would sell them to his mates when he published them. Right. But they were, you know, they were not serious books from my point of view. Yes. And and then one night we, we got friendly and sometimes a few of us go down the pub, but one night just he and I ended up in the pub after class and he said, listen, Bruce, I think, um, you know, you're really good with words and you're published and I'm really good at plots so how about we get together and write a book together? And I just sort of, I thought he was really cheeky. He is, he is a cheeky guy. And I laughed. And I said, well, yeah, Kelvin, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. And anyway, the next morning I wrote him a very, you know, teacherly kind of uh, group leader sort of <laughs> email going, uh, well, look, Kelvin, um, you know, I've got lots of projects and, you know, <laughs> But as it turned out, the project I was working on sort of crashed and burned. And then I thought up this other thing I wanted to write about going to San Francisco in 1978, right back then when you were only six. And um, I would visit my brother, James, and then I would go to... Central America and South America on the Gringo Trail. So I wrote the first bit by myself and it was like a, a memoir. Mm. Which and, is kind um, of your comfort zone, isn't it? Like memoir fiction slash yeah. is where you normally yeah. reside, right? Yeah. Autobiographical fiction and right. memoir. I mean, I have written fictions that are, um, where I've completely departed from sure. reality but um, or from history. 
But this was following that pattern. And then I thought, I don't know, you know, there was something about my brother's life that um, was intriguing to me and he wouldn't tell me everything. And he worked with the Australian Trade Commission and he used to sell pavlovas. Wow. Australian pavlovas, you know, frozen. And he'd go around on trade fairs and things and, you know, and flog these. In San Francisco. But there was always something else. There was always something that he didn't tell me or that I thought he wasn't telling me. Anyway, this atmosphere of sort of crime and mystery Mm. uh, surrounded the first couple of pages and I thought, bugger it, this is a crime book and I'm going to ring Kelvin. So (laughs) I called Kelvin and I said, you remember that? You remember that offer? I said, are you still up for it? And he went, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, let's write it and we'll call it The King of San Francisco. And it's about a bloke who, you know, is pretty sort of influential in a funny way in this big American city at a time when, you know, the AIDS crisis hadn't hit yet. There were a lot of gay people, including Harvey Milk, who was um, ultimately, sadly, assassinated, but he was on the local council, and including weirdness, you know, like that Jonestown thing. Yes. Where the guru killed all his followers in South America after after fleeing from San Francisco. So there was a lot of that yes. lot of stuff to write about, plus the music, plus, you know, the post hippie era and so we just began and um would you like me to tell you about that absolutely yes please that was like so you know the first time it was hair raising because he wrote back his chapter we decided to do a chapter about so I said okay well I'm up to here so I'm going to hand it over to you now then he sent back his chapter and it was all dialogue and it was all tough sort of, you know, Raymond Chandler sort of, <laughs> you know. And, no grey. Um, <laughs> no grey. And, and he admires um, uh, Jack Reacher books. I don't know if you know them, but they're, you know, he's a, Jack Reacher is a big macho guy who doesn't matter how many people are in the room, he can kill them, you know, or right. he can disable them or whatever. And, they're, and they're quite brutal and but sort of page turners, and that's what he likes. So it started going this way, when, uh, and he would keep telling me endings. He would ring up and say, I've got the ending, Bruce, and I'd say, no, we're, we're not there yet. Um, you know, this is a character-driven novel, ha-ha, because that's what I write. I write character-driven novels. He writes plot-driven novels, and all he could think of was the plot. Of course. So... so um, but we got on, you know, and we would, and he would respond, and um, I would edit his pieces and put in more thoughtful stuff and more, um, you know, self reflection on the part of the characters and things like that. Mm. And I would also cut out words that he'd used that I thought were unsuitable and then he would write back and say ah you you know you and my wife are ganging up on me because she thought the same thing you know that I shouldn't have that word 
<laughs> I would always find it. Just a small example, like he would always say, and then the lady, whatever, you know, and I said, like, you don't say lady, you say woman, you know, by 1978. <laughs> I was being trained to say woman, you know. Yes. And we can use that. Now, that was just a minor thing, but it, you do have to watch mm. uh, for anachronisms when you're yes. writing back in 1978. You know, Absolutely. There's no, no mobile phones, no screens, right. no internet. Um, Must so be a fascinating world just to immerse yourself in for yeah. a while. Very, and you know he's he's a muso as well. He's been a muso, and he's interested in music. And so he says, "Oh, the Flying Burrito Brothers were really big at that time." So um, we had a, a whole chapter where they go to a, a burrito, Flying Burrito Brothers concert. And great, Grateful Dead would that would that have been big at that point? Yeah, well? that would have been they would have been there, I guess. I was thinking, um, or maybe they're a bit yeah, earlier. I don't know. You'd have to that. check it all, wouldn't you? Yeah, you have to check everything. Fact-checking, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's how it's going. So we're, we're up to about 30,000 words. And that's the, amazing. I, the collaboration is going gangbusters. I mean, we meet at least once a week. We're really churning out the work. Um, the Until, action – sorry? No, you go. Oh, the action moves to Guatemala. Oh, cool. And he's responded to that really well. So first of all, he'll come up with sort of stereotypes of Guatemalans and I'll say, no, they're not like Mexicans quite, you know, and there's it's a different place. And, Funny. And, and so on. But he learns quickly. Yeah. And uh, Talk me through the how exactly do you collaborate? Like so you're mm. writing, he's writing, you're talking. Mm. How does it actually? Yeah. What? So... I will send him a chapter and his usual response is, that's fantastic, Bruce, that's really <laughs> great. And Jenny really likes it too, you know, because he gets that's his brilliant. wife to read it. And then sometimes he'll say, are we having an agreement about, this? like are we going to fill out some kind of contract about Because he's, he's pretty certain it's going to be a big hit. Great. So, but, so he pours a lot of admiration on me. But... As we've gone along, and then I usually just send him back his chapter that's heavily edited and with inserts to try and make it stick. You used to be a continuity person, you know. I've got to yes. try and worry about continuity and right, you know, the technical been, the side yeah, of it. Yeah, what's been said before, right? And so I, I can just put that in. So I've got free reign as far as editing him. He doesn't. He's not brave enough to edit me mostly, but he right. will say in the meetings, he'll say, no, no, you <laughs> can't have that. You know? And I'll say, well, I would think, you know, blah, blah, and, you know, about some outcome or about some right. um, meeting with high-powered gangsters or something. He'll say, no, that's not going to happen, you know. He also seems to know hardware, you know, so he's got a Beretta and he's got... Right. Utsi guns in it. He's, he's got, got some technical Israeli there. Yeah. <laughs> he's bringing in, so he's bringing in things that I would never have thought of, never been brave enough to think of. So you and, have a, so you speak together and you take notes and then write the chapter or you're editing yeah. or both? Uh, well, we will agree on where it's going right. and then I'll say, then okay, I'm going to write it 
up until the point right. where they leave the compound in right. Guatemala, you know, and then yeah. he's got the next scene to write, which is them fleeing the compound and trying right. to get to a place called Panahachel. So um, the other thing, funny thing, is that he insists on some things, not very many, not very often, but he says, we've got to have a dog. And I say, <laughs> I don't think so. Kill Why? <laughs> well, we've got to have a guard dog. And um, right. And and we'll th- they'll find him on the beach on Pebble Beach down at um, you know just south of San Francisco there, that fabulous strip of coastline leading down to Monterey. Mm. We'll find him there. He'll be he'll be very dishevelled and covered in sand. But he'll actually have been trained to be um, a guard dog. What a great idea! And it. It's an Alsatian. It's a German shepherd, a beautiful German shepherd. And he had a joke to go with it. He said, they're going to call him Rolex. I said, why is that? Well, because he's a watchdog. Ah, oh, brilliant. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> so, right, that's, that's okay. But he'd already had the younger brother give the older brother a Rolex watch. And I said, well, you can't have both. You've got to have one or the, one or the other. Right. So that's how it goes. So we <laughs> haggle and, of course, that's very enlivening, you know. It's sort of you don't have those sort of haggles with yourself. And so tell me what's, what's great about it? Why is it great for you to be doing this? Oh, I can just tell by the way I'm talking about it, you know, that it, it, it makes me, it sort of brought me back to the, guts of writing, whereas I think in later life I'd sort of after my three novels were published with Fremantle Press and after these biographies, I was sort of, you know, I was sort of maybe taking on projects that were impossibly difficult and um, maybe even inward looking, you know. I can see out of the corner of my eye a certain granddaughter as well. <laughs> yes, my, my son and daughter just walked in behind the Zoom session. Um, for those of you on the podcast <laughs> that can't see the video, um, it sounds like an, I love that you said I can tell by the way I'm talking about it because sometimes in my, like in my coaching, for example, when someone says, well, I just don't know which one to do, you know, I, I, mm. I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, and I'm like, well, mm. when you talk about it, how do you feel? Or like when people talk about you, what do they mm. always ask you about? What do they always say? Oh, yeah, she's that woman who blah, blah, blah. You know, because the way that mm. we talk about things gives us huge indicators, doesn't it? And the way we feel mm. when mm. we talk about something, it's a big yeah. indicator. Like it's in the body almost. Like you can feel oh, it yes. in the body, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm, you know, wanting to tell Robin that's my wife, about it. And um, she she listens and she laughs about my stories about Kelvin. Um, <laughs> I don't want to tell a lot of other people about it, but I've, it's sure. like I've got a secret, you know, I've got a sort of a, a, a fun secret that um, makes me want to get out of bed every day really. Mm. And that's amazing, isn't it? It's like something that gets you out of bed has got to be good because you're excited about it, you know. 
Well, and you know, getting out of bed very early is a writer's thing, and I yes. used to do it with my books when I was, you know, 50. Yeah. And um, uh, it's not so easy now, but there have been a couple of mornings where I've got up at 5 o'clock. And oh, that's exciting. It's lovely. It's just sort of recaptured that. And what don't you love about it? Is there anything you don't love? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm terrified that it's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be, you know, filled with Jack Reacher sort of characters that are, you know, gun-wielding idiots, you know, who gangsters and who I don't ever want to have anything to do with. But it, it isn't like that. I'm reading over it again and I really i am enjoying it, the reading over and as a story, and I think it's well-written and, um, yeah, so. There's definitely something about, you know, you're doing a project that you're enjoying and the process is enlivening and enjoying yeah. and, and you know, in, and joyful. So, so it's kind of like almost doesn't matter, does it, the, the book at the end, almost doesn't matter if it's that much fun to make. I mean, well, it does almost, because it's a creative process. Yes, I mean, I, to, I don't want to disappoint him and I don't right. want to disappoint myself and I don't want to spend a year or it might only be six months the way it's going but, yeah. you know, like just wasting time. But um, yeah. I think something will come of it. I mean, the other amazing thing is to think that you can collaborate with people in, you know, in a class, in you know, people that you're, you have this relationship of, you know, mentor, guide, teacher, coach, etc. But then to be able to collaborate with one of them on a f- book-length project is a pretty amazing thing. In fact, it's probably a selling point, you know. And, Absolutely. Uh, I can imagine that as a really good publicity um, message. Yes. It's a lovely story. And, and also, I mean, you're mm. touching on there something that I am also really passionate about, again, because I create communities in the work that I do and one Mm. of the reasons that I do that is because I feel like there's a huge amount of care and consideration and accountability and Mm. um, a sort of an exponential effect when you work in Mm. with other people and and when you come in with a kind of a common uh, with a deliberate intention I guess like for you it's to write this book and and for me it's often to maybe solve some problems, you know, but mm. but it's like it, there's something kind of it builds on itself and it snowballs yeah. and it and it builds in yeah. a way that it doesn't build when you're on your own. Yes. And that accountability, like you, you're saying, I, I want it to be a good book for him. I don't want him to be disappointed, you know. Mm. There's that it's not just about you and there's something powerful no. I think when we do get our focus off ourselves and look around us yes. and start to connect with um that sort of idea as well. It's it's powerful. Yeah. You know, we're, you, we're you built can like get that. A bit, yeah, you can get a bit precious writing yeah. your own book by yourself in your little study. And um, I don't have any, I'm not at all reluctant to meet him in a coffee shop and we're yelling at him, we're sort of, you know, bargaining loudly across the table and <laughs> he's saying sure. outrageous things, but it, it feels like, you know, the book is just something we're making and, and other people are making other things on other tables, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? 
and it's natural. It's something also I think about doing something that sort of just happens very naturally. Yeah. It's not forced. It's not difficult in that way. And that's well, it made me think. I talked about playwriting before, and it made me think that you know maybe I am in the wrong game, or I, <laughs> it's yeah. a bit late. But you know, like the idea, making a play, of course, playwrights have to get together with the actors and or TV as well as you know screenwriters negotiate with the director about yeah. how the action and so on. So yeah, yeah. and that's it, it is a fun thing. Mm. So the benefits of collaboration for you are many, by the sounds of it. There's, yeah. there's a lot of a lot of benefits, and yeah, um, my tip would be find somebody that you share some things with. Yeah. So, but not too close to your own. So right. he he is nothing like the writers I know. You yeah. know, I know lots of writers, too many writers. One of them, a friend, said the other day, you're the only person I know that could do something like this. <laughs> but I like him because, I mean, he rides a Harley. He's been a muso. You know, there's lots of things in his life that mm. um, I connect with. And, you know, you've always been the kind of person wherever, when I'm, one of my defining memories as a child, whenever we went anywhere, and often we went on holidays together, you know, so that was sort of a lot of my experience with you. And one of the things I always remember you is we've been some back of Burke, no middle of nowhere pub, and you would strike up a conversation with whoever was sitting next to you at the bar, you know, so that Sorry interest. That. <laughs> no, it was lovely. And we sort of would make friends wherever we went, mostly friends anyway, I think. But, like, I just remember you that interest that you talk about that started you writing, that mm. observation of people and that interest in people's mm. stories and characters, you know, mm. in your novel. Mm. That's clear that that's in you, you know, like when you, yeah. whenever we travelled, you would always start talking and you were interested in them. It wasn't like you were just talking about yourself. You wanted to know who they were and what was their story. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. And I remember that. And, I, I mean, I remember being, because I was extremely shy and I remember feeling almost like, gosh, like almost embarrassed because there was no way I could do that. You know, I was so not right. in that space. And there, and you just would talk to anyone. And I just remember thinking, how amazing. And the funny thing is, I'm like that too now. <laughs> my mum, yeah, my, my children are. say to me, oh, mum, you'll talk to anyone. You Don't know? just talk to them. That's right. You just talk to everybody wherever we go, you know, you start <laughs> speaking to people. So I think it's sort of interesting that that is actually what's become a part of your process now is that you appreciate your collaborator for who he is and the sort of person. He's an interesting person. Well, he's and definitely the sort of guy I would talk to in a pub. Right, and that's part <laughs> of it as well. You know, where so it started. You can have a conversation that becomes a story yeah. in a book because you've always been able to have that conversation. And so it's just mm. it, that's probably what your writer friend's referring to as well as, you know, you, you're the only writer I know that could do that. It's because you've got that, you know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very interesting thing that, you know, not it everybody is. has. It's fascinating to me, yeah. Mm. yeah. Thanks, Elena. That's really great observation. <laughs> You're welcome, Bruce. Um, so I think we've covered everything. Is there any other part of this story that you haven't told us yet or shall we wrap it up? No, let's wrap it up. It's good. It's been lovely to, being able to talk about it. So. Very nice. Thank, Thank you. you very much for appearing on the show, Bruce Russell, a.k.a. my dad. See you later. All right, Elena. Thank AKA you. AKA my daughter. See you later. <laughs> Thank you.